Well, having visited 16 different churches this summer, I only found one church that sings as good as ours. It's true. If you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, page 1012. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, page 1012. In your pew Bibles, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1012. Today we're going to study the first four verses. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were hounded down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be home. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for... Your faithful hand, Lord, you are sovereign. You are the king of this church. You are the king of the world. Jesus, we thank you that that your work continues day and night, whether we're faithful or unfaithful, whether we're present or absent, whether we're healthy or sick. Your kingdom advances, both in our lives and in the world. And so we thank you that you've called us into what you are doing, into this great work of your glory being preached to the whole world. Lord, I thank you for taking care of this church. Thank you, Lord, for Pastor Seth and his uh, his energy and, and the, the commitment and the drive that he gave this summer to, to cover my leadership task and his own. Lord, we pray you bless him and his family. Give him a, a good vacation this coming week, a good, well-needed, well-deserved rest. Lord, we thank you for Mark Jennings and the great gifts you've given him. Thank you for his mind and his humor and his, uh, his speaking gifts and, Lord, his whole person. We pray that you bless him and his family, especially as they go to Illinois. Lord, uh, prepare them and, and give them everything they need as they go to England to... Uh, work on a doctorate. And I pray, Lord, prepare him so that he might be a, a great influence in our culture and in the academy, in the, in the university, teaching the Bible as one who actually believes it. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I, I know this summer, Lord, people have gone through ups and downs. People have had good summers. Some people have had terrible summers. And I thank you, Lord, that you're with them in all of it, that you're here in this church. And that as I come back to this church, Lord, I, I step back into something that you are continuing to do that it didn't miss a beat because you, O oh Jesus, are the, the pastor of this flock. And so, Lord, I pray now that as we study your word, that you might meet with us again in your faithfulness, that you might come and speak to our hearts. Lord Jesus, we come here every Sunday. We come to churches every Sunday because we need to hear the word of God so desperately. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would meet us in your word this morning, that, that what we are about to hear here wouldn't just be some rambling thoughts from a a human being named Jeremy, but that it would be you speaking through your word. Lord, use me as a vessel. And and Lord, if there's anything that I have or am that's in the way, I pray, Lord, you clear that out of the way so that your people can hear from you. Lord, strengthen your flock this morning. Feed them, encourage them. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was a great summer. Uh, Very fruitful. I got to read a lot. I read a stack of books. 
visited, like I said, 16 different churches, and I met with pastors and went to conferences, and you know, just like just fed. It was it was like being on the cruise ship all summer. You know, I just fed and fed, and and I I feel really rare, uh, charged up and ready to go. I'm excited to be back. I mean, I love being with my family all the time. Uh, that, that was a real blessing. But I am ready to be back. Um, but I did do some fun things this summer too. I know that's hard to believe coming from me, but I, I managed to have some fun. Probably one of the most fun things I did was I went on a, a week-long canoe trip in northwestern Maine. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Allagash Wilderness Waterway, but I mean, this is, you know, Maine is really remote. There's really nothing in Maine. Well, there's even less than nothing up in the Allagash. I mean, it is way up there. 95 miles of canoeing. Uh, there's nothing up there except loon and moose and trees. And I went with my father. It was actually a, his, a present for his 60th birthday. And I went with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. I mean, we just had an awesome time. And, you know, one of the reasons you go on a trip like that is you just want to get away from everything and get back to the basics. That's why you put yourself through that, is you want to go back to the basics. You want to get rid of all of this modern stuff. You know, because on the Allagash, there's no email, and there's no, you know, stop and shop, and there's no gridlock. I mean, it's just, it's remote. It's just what you bring with you. In fact, we kind of have this, this uh, running joke. We'd get to a campsite, and my father-in-law would pull out his cell phone, and my dad would pull out his Blackberry, and they'd turn them on, and they'd go, you know, like this, and, you know, can you hear me now? Ha, 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 you know, there's just nothing nothing out there. But that's the point. You go to places like that to get back to the basics, to get back to just what it means to exist. That's why you go there. You know, when you're on a trip like that, the excitement of the day is getting the fire started. And the big accomplishment of the day is boiling the water to kill the Giardia so you can have potable water. You know, that's like, oh, we got water. And, and you know, the, the real big excitement is if you can find a flat place to put your sleeping bag. It's just, you know, it's so great to push aside all of the nonsense that fills our lives and just get back to the, the fundamentals, the basics of existence. And it puts everything in perspective when you do come back to civilization. This morning I'd like to lead our church into a study of the basics. I want to take us back to the basics. Take us on a little Allagash canoe trip as a church. And for us as Christians, going back to the basics means going back to Jesus himself. Jesus is the basics. Christianity is fundamentally about this guy named Jesus. It's about his teachings. It's about his life, his ministry. It's, it's studying this person, Jesus. Uh, G- Christianity is not fundamentally a moral system. I think some people think of Christianity as, well, it's a, it tells you how to live right. Basically, Christianity is learning how to live the right way. I mean, no, you know, it's a lot more than that. It's about Jesus. And Christianity is not fundamentally about institution. It's not about the church as a building, although it includes the church and it includes morals. But if you kind of push all that stuff away, say, what's the bedrock? It's Jesus. It's all about this guy named Jesus. And I think that's important to keep coming back to that because it's easy to lose sight of Christ. Uh, when new people who are kind of investigating Christianity for the first time, and they're not sure if they want to follow Christ or not, but they're kind of looking into it. And, and, and when they have a hard time embracing Christianity and you talk to them, what you typically find is that they're not asking questions about Jesus. When people get distracted in the Christian faith, they've typically gotten focused on peripheral issues. You know, philosophical issues, like if God is really God, why is there suffering in the world? I mean, that's a good question. We can debate that. But let's stick to the basics, too. 
Or, or people ask you know, historical questions like, why the Crusades? Why the Inquisition? Didn't these things come out of Christianity? And you know, we've got to talk about that too and, and wrestle through those things. Or sometimes people have a struggle with Christianity because they get focused on their own personal experiences. You know, I had this guy who lived next door to me and uh, he claimed to be a Christian, but then you know, he, he left his wife and he had a drug problem, and, but he seemed to be a Christian, so these Christians are all hypocrites, you know, that, that kind of thing. Or, or, or someone else will say, yeah, I was involved in a church, but man, I got really hurt. So I'm not going back to the church anymore. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And there's a place for processing all that. There's a place for asking questions. But you also need to push it aside and say, but you know, that's not what Christianity is. I don't think Jesus was psyched about the Crusades and the Inquisition. In fact, I don't think he had to do anything with his teachings at all. You know, let's, let's look at what, what it is. It's about Jesus. Not at all the permutations and distortions, which you can find in any system, in any way of life. There's always permutations and distortions. But even for us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who would gladly say, I am a follower of Christ, yes, I think it's important for us to get back to the basics. Because even in our Christian lives, we, I so easily fill the, that life up with sort of spiritual activity, for lack of a better word. It's not bad things. It's things we should be doing. You know, I serve in the nursery, and I'm, I'm an usher, and I'm on this committee, and I go to this Bible study, and I hang out with these Christian friends, and, and, and these activities can kind of fill up our lives. And that's not bad. I mean, we should do those things. That's part of our Christian expression. My point is, you can do those things with or without Jesus. And it's easy to do those things and to kind of let those things become my, my relationship with Christ instead of those things being an outgrowth of my relationship with Christ. A subtle difference, and yet it makes all the difference. And so even as Christians, we've got to keep pushing back to the basics and read the story of Jesus again. Who was this guy? And I suspect that as we read the story of Jesus, we may be a little surprised. You know, we have, as Christians, as evangelicals, our little catchphrase, we have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's good. But, but, you know, sometimes that personal relationship with Jesus can become distorted, and it can become sort of a product of our own minds instead of really knowing who this person was. I suspect as we read, as Christians, as we read the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be surprised, maybe even challenged sometimes by the things Jesus says. You know, Jesus offended a lot of people. You know who he offended most often? The religious people. <laughs> so I, I kind of going, personally, I'm going into this a little fear and trepidation. I don't know what he's going to say. I have a feeling I might be uncomfortable sometimes. But, you know, I want to know him. And I'm willing to be uncomfortable to really find out who this person was. So we're studying the Gospel of Luke. You have Luke in front of you. Hopefully open your Bibles there to page 1012. Luke is one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then the next book is Acts. And maybe you know that Acts is actually volume two of Luke. Luke wrote two volumes. He wrote the two longest books of the Bible, Luke and Acts. And Luke is the story of Jesus from birth through his life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, until he went back into heaven. And then Acts picks up the story from when Jesus went into heaven and tells the story of the church all the way until Paul, the, the Apostle Paul takes the message of Jesus to Rome. So it kind of takes us from Jerusalem to what would be at that time the ends of the earth, which is the Roman Empire in Rome itself. It's, it's the story of, of Jesus and his message going forward. And so what I want to do this morning is just, I, I guess, like Luke 101, a basic introduction to Luke so that you know who Luke is. So today's sermon is a little more informative. It's you know, not so much about practical application, but it's more just about us kind of getting a framework for reading Luke. So I just want to look at these first four verses with you quickly, and I want to look at three questions. The who the what and the why. The who, the what, and the why. So that's my, my outline this morning. First of all, who. 
And we can ask who one of two ways. We can ask who wrote it and to whom was it written. And who wrote it? Well, it's Luke. Luke was the, the author of, of this book. But who is Luke? Well, um, the first thing we can say about Luke is Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. You know, there was Jesus and he had 12 apostles, his 12 disciples around him. This wasn't, Luke wasn't one of those guys. In fact, he's very clear that he wasn't one of the eyewitnesses. He didn't personally hang out with Jesus. If you look at verse 1, Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first uh, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke does not identify himself as an eyewitness. He wasn't one of the people who walked with Jesus. He wasn't one of the people who was there at the cross. But he was a person who hung out with the eyewitnesses. So he was, I guess we might call it like a second generation. He hung out with the Apostle Paul who did see the risen Christ. So you have Paul, and Paul's traveling around the world preaching the gospel. And Luke is his buddy. Luke hangs out with him. Luke goes with him. Uh, Luke, by trade, was a physician. He was a doctor. So he's educated. He's uh, articulate. He's, he's kind of a scientist. He has that sort of mind. We'll see how that sort of plays out in a few moments. Uh, so, so that's who Luke was. And, and most importantly, Luke lived in the time of Jesus. And I think that's important. Luke was not written 400 years later by some guy who wants to write some mythology about some Jesus. He, Luke lived in the very time period when these things took place. Luke could go find Mary, the mother of Jesus, and hang out with her. Luke could go talk to the disciples, and he did. He hung out with them. He knew these people. So he was, he was there with the eyewitnesses in the very first generation of the church. That's who Luke was. But we could also ask, to whom was Luke written? And we find that in verse 3. Luke says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So it's written to some guy named Theophilus. You know, who is that? And the answer is, I have no idea. We don't know who Theophilus was. He just kind of shows up here. Um, we can know that he probably was a powerful, influential person because of that title, Most Excellent. That's only something you said to somebody who was, you know, pretty big cheese. Right, this would have been someone who had high social and political standing in Roman culture. Some people have said, well, maybe it's like Luke's literary patron. Maybe some guy paid Luke to, to write this book or something. You know, that's speculation. We don't know who he was. Uh, what we do know about Theophilus also is that he's probably a newcomer to the faith. If you look at verse 4, look at verse 4. He says, I write this to you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So whoever Theophilus was, he was either someone investigating Christianity or I think more likely somebody who had recently become a Christian but was kind of like, hmm, am I sure about this? And he's having doubts. And we'll get to that a little bit later too. So that's the who. But let me quickly move to the what. So the who is Luke wrote it to Theophilus and then by extension to, to all Christians because it's meant for the church. But then the second question is what? And I really want to spend a little more time here. What is Luke? You know, what kind of literature do we have in front of us? You, you, know, you know what a, uh, a magazine is, and you know what a, a novel is, but then you open up this ancient book, and you know, part of it is just trying to figure out, like, what am I reading here? Is this an epic poem? Is this a novel? You know, what, what is this kind of literature? What is its genre? And there's different ways to get at that. We can both look externally by comparing Luke to other types of ancient literature and saying, okay, it's most like this kind of literature. We can also look at what Luke says about itself. And in both cases, what we find is that Luke is fundamentally a history. It is an ancient history. It's not a modern history. It wasn't written perhaps the way we might write a history today, but it was written according to the ways that people wrote histories in those days. It was a history. 
You know, when you compare Luke to other uh, literature outside of the Bible, at the same time Greek uh, literature and even Jewish literature, what you find is it, it, it reads like a Greek uh, history. It, it, there's characteristics that are similar to it. It's like, you know, Thucydides' uh, history of the Peloponnesian Wars. It's like Herodotus and Pliny the Younger and Suetonius and some of these other famous Greek historians. And there's all these characteristics in Luke that kind of match that. So it, it reads like a history uh, compared to other ancient histories. But even more than that, it, it purports to be a history itself. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account, highlight that word, an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word account in Greek, it, it really means like a narrative. It means an orderly accounting. It's someone who takes the facts and, and then they line them up in an orderly way so that it makes sense. Words, this is a narrative history. It's a description of what took place. Or look at verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke is trying to tie into these people who actually saw it. He's going to interview them. He's going to investigate what they said. He's going to investigate these other accounts. Now what were those other accounts? I don't know. Maybe the Gospel of Mark? You know, there's a lot of Mark in Luke. There's a lot of very similar passages that's led many scholars to think that perhaps Luke had a copy of Mark when he wrote Luke, and that was one of his sources. You know, it's kind of interesting to, you know, who knows? Again, it's speculation, but it seems likely. But the point is, Luke wants to write his own, verse 3. He says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke wants to write an orderly account. And notice his investigation. Notice these three phrases. First of all, he's carefully investigated. Now here I think we have Luke the physician and scientist. This is the scientific mind. of Luke. Some of you are kind of scientifically trained. Some of you are trained. In the, and you know, you know how the scientific mind works. It's like, give me the facts. Give me the data. You know, I, I want this fact and this fact. And give me all the facts and line them up. And then, you know, let me analyze the data and then come out with hypotheses to test the data. Now, that's how the scientific mind works. They want the details. They want to get into the nitty-gritty of, of what actually happened. They, they don't want generalizations. They're not going to take your word for it. And that's how Luke was. He, he carefully investigated. He didn't just say, oh, that's who Jesus was. Well, that's fine. No, he's like a scientist. I'm going to find this out for myself. And notice that he carefully investigates, verse 3, everything. He, he wants the whole thing. He's not satisfied with a little soundbite or a little proof text. No, no, he wants to know if this whole thing is real. So he investigates everything from the birth of Jesus all the way up until, well, until Rome, which is as far as the gospel had gotten in his days. He was sort of take us from the beginning up to his present time. And then notice he says, I investigated everything from the beginning. So he's going to take us all the way back to the earliest records. You know what's interesting about Luke? So it has the most extensive section of all the gospels on the birth of Jesus. Isn't it interesting? You know, if you want to learn about the birth of Jesus in his early years, you read Luke. And it's not in the other Gospels. You kind of wonder, like, where did Luke get that? I don't know. That's sort of how my mind goes. I sort of speculate, like, why does Luke have that and the other guys don't? And I just sort of wonder, you know, Luke has the birth of Jesus. He has the, the time when Mary appears to, uh, when Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, when the, the virgin birth is announced. Like, how did Luke find that out? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Maybe Luke found Mary. <laughs> she would have likely still been alive. Maybe he sat down with her and said, you know, this is what I'm going to write. And, and, you know, what, what can you tell me about Jesus? Maybe Mary's, you know, I'm totally speculating here. This is totally Jeremyology. But, you know, you know maybe, said, maybe Mary said, I'm going to tell you something, Luke, that I've told very few people. I'm going to tell you how I first heard about this. 
You know, and so you have this intimate, personal stuff that only Mary would have known, and yet Luke has somehow found it. So it's this, this history from the beginning. It's, it's a historical document. It's what it is. It's a history of Jesus. Now, I know that may sound funny to us because we've been kind of conditioned by our culture to view the Bible as mm, a moral book or a religious book, but not as a historical book, do we? I mean, we don't think of it that way. That's not the, the, the category in which we have the Bible. Uh, one of the things I did this summer was um, I'm having an addition put on my house. So getting an extra bedroom and a mudroom. Oh, mudroom. It's great. So I'm very excited about this. And it's, it's just going, coming along swimmingly. But, uh, so I interacted with lots of different builders and people and architects. One of the guys I interacted with this, uh, in this process, uh, he knew I was a, a pastor and knew I went to church. And he was kind of asking about the church. And, and I sort of was emphasizing, you know, one of the things that probably makes our church distinct is we really believe the Bible and we really try to go by the Bible. And he said, you know, I got my questions about the Bible. He says, you know, I read this book called The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started, okay? <laughs> I'm like this close to just teeing off and losing track. But anyway, he's like, I read The Da Vinci Code. And, you know, I think The Da Vinci Code's right about something. I think about three, four hundred years after Jesus, you know, some guys got together, some religious guys, and they retooled the story and, and they added things and got rid of things to make the story the way it sound the way he wanted it to. You know, I'm just... I mean, that's how ridiculous our culture is, people. That people today will not believe one of the most, the most reliable ancient documents we have in all of antiquity, the Bible, but they'll believe the Da Vinci Code, which is a fiction? It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's just how, how dumb we've become in society. That, that's how unable to think clearly. Okay, anyway, I'm launching, so I'm going to pull back now and get back into the story. So anyway, um, yeah, so... <laughs> And I think there's this idea, both in academic circles, there's an academic version of it, there's also a pop culture version of it, that somehow we don't know who Jesus was. That there was this Jesus, but then the church kind of mythologized him and inflated him and turned him into a legend, so that what we have in the Bible is this kind of you know, church-eyes, legendary figure of Jesus, but it's not really who he was. But I'm telling you people, it couldn't be further from the truth. Luke did not write in 400 A.D. The, the, Luke was written and, and Acts was written. Well, you know, scholars disagree. But it's some, you know, their disagreement is somewhere in the range of the early 60s to maybe on the outside 80. And there might be a couple, you know, wild people who put them in the hundreds or whatever. But most of those people are kind of fringe. So it's, it's 60 to 80. This is within a few years, maybe even a few decades of when the events actually happened. I mean, he was there. Uh, and, and the documents we have are trustworthy. Someone says, well, how do you know that the documents we have weren't all changed and, and re-edited? Because we have ancient documents. In terms of what we call the manuscript evidence, in other words, the documents we have, the copies of the original copy, there is, I mean, I say this categorically, no book in antiquity that compares with the manuscript evidence of the New Testament. It's, nothing even comes close it's in a total category of its own. If the documents of the New Testament can't be trusted as representing what was actually written, then I'm telling you people, no ancient documents can be trusted. They're, they're just that, I put all this stuff in the sermon notes if you want to read about that kind of thing. And even when you read Luke, it's just so historically oriented. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke kicks off his whole thing. Here's the story, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. There was, dot, dot, dot. He's already dating it according to who was ruling at the time. Again, this is kind of this scientific data wonk kind of mentality where he wants to get all the data right. Or look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
Chapter 2, verse 1 is the Christmas story. The Christmas story starts with this like, historical reference. He says, in those days, chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus, by the way, the only time in the New Testament a Caesar is named by name is right here. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. I mean, again, data wonk. You know, engineer mentality. I want to get all the data right. No offense to engineers out there. I mean, not every engineer is a data wonk. But you know what I'm saying? I'm backpedaling here. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, he just has this like little detailed mentality where, where he wants to get all the details right. No, I want to make a historical reference. Quirinius was the governor of Syria. First census. I mean, this is really historical kind of stuff. When you go to the, the book of Acts, it's even more history. I mean, you're just like swamped in history. Uh, Luke had a very crisp understanding of how the Roman government was structured at that time. Uh, you know, and the Roman government was a huge bureaucracy. It was like a lot of your companies. It was being restructured all the time, reorganized, different titles, different names, positions. You know, imagine if someone came to you and said, oh yeah, I know your company. And you say, yeah, you don't, you don't really know my company. And then they began to tell you about your company those of you in large companies. And they began to tell you, oh, this person is the VP of this, which is actually a task force that's associated with that. And this person was the human resources liaison to that task force. And, and let's say they knew all of the, you know, the org chart of your complex company. You would say, wow, you really do know my company. Well, that's how it is with Luke. He knows the org chart and the titles of the Roman Empire. And, and somebody writing hundreds of years later just would not have known that. They didn't have those kinds of records. They didn't have Google. You couldn't you know, research those things. So this was a guy who lived in that time. He knew that the leaders of Asia were called Asiarchs, but that the people of Macedonia were called Politarchs. And he knew that you know, Philippi was ruled by praetors and they had lictors and you know, all these things that you just wouldn't have known unless you were there. So the whole thing just oozes, oozes history. It oozes history. And I just want to say, you know, we're going to read this as a historical document. Now, someone says, yeah, well, well, what about all the miracles and stuff? I mean, yeah, there's all these historical references to these people, and that's fine, Pastor, but well, you know, what about the virgin birth and miracles? I mean, that's not historical. Hmm. Now we've crossed from history to philosophy. <laughs> why don't you think they're historical? Well, because miracles just can't happen. Really, why is that? Uh, you know, <laughs> well, why? It's, that's because you don't believe in God. And why don't you believe in God? Because there's scientific proof? No, because by faith you have chosen unbelief. But if there is a God, people, what's the problem with miracles? If there's a creator, there is absolutely no intellectual problem with miracles, right? If someone created this whole universe, then why couldn't they do something else? I mean, philosophically, it's not a problem. So, so what I propose is not to just throw the Bible and Luke out of hand and say, oh, it's the Bible, you know, we can't trust it. I just want to say, let's read it for what it is, as a, as a record of ancient history. And when we come to those places that are harder, we'll just look at them for what they are and we'll kind of investigate them all along. So, who? Luke wrote to Theophilus and by extension to all Christians. What? He wrote an ancient history. He, he wrote a historical survey of the life of Jesus. And then finally, quickly here, Why? Why did he write this? What motivated him to do this careful investigation into everything from the beginning? Why would he plunge himself into this endeavor? And I'm sure there's lots of answers to that question, but I just want to look at the answer given in verse 4 as one of the answers. He says, verse 4, chapter 1, So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 
Yes, Luke is a history, but it's a history written from a certain perspective. All histories, everything in life is written from a certain perspective. The news to you that you see at night comes from a certain perspective. And Luke comes from a certain perspective. It comes from the perspective of faith. And so Luke's goal is not just to fill us with data, but to get, fill us with faith. He wants you to know the certainty of the things you have believed. So probably Theophilus is having some doubts. He's having some questions. I don't know what they were. You know, we can hypothesize. You know, maybe he's this, this big political social leader who suddenly, in a pagan Roman world, who suddenly embraced Christianity and everyone's going, what are you doing, Theophilus? You know, his family and his peers are like, what are you getting involved in this little weird sect that's an offshoot of Judaism? And so Theophilus, maybe, I don't know, I'm just guessing, maybe he had his doubts, maybe he struggles. And so Luke wants to encourage him and say, yes, Theophilus, you can really believe this. You can really identify with, with, with all the risks that entails. Can we, as modern people, really bank our lives on Jesus? You know, we're, we're modern people. You know, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. And we're modern. I mean, we have the internet, we have you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, and we drive cars, and we're educated, we have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. And you know, Can we, as modern, educated people, really identify with and, and give our lives to some guy who the last time he was on planet Earth was 2,000 years ago? I mean, is that, does that make any sense? Is that wise? Is that a good thing to do? And Luke writes his gospel because he wants to say, Yes! Yes! It's the right thing to do. Luke wants us to know with certainty that Jesus really is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And so he writes this Gospel so that we can have certainty because we have the same doubts just as they would have had doubts. And we can know that this, this Christ is that. And, and Luke believes that if he can just tell the story of Jesus, take us back to the basics and just tell that story of Jesus, that it will shine so brightly in the darkness, that it will glimmer so radiantly among the, the trash heap of culture that we'll say, yes, that is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Because Jesus is just so amazing. And so, I challenge you to, to come at it with an expectancy that God is going to speak to us, that God is going to show us Jesus, and that that will change everything. So here's your homework. Two homework assignments for you. Uh, your first homework assignment is this week to read Luke. Read Luke. Just sit down and read it. My Bible is 35 pages. 35 pages, you know? There's more pages than that than People Magazine, you know? And we, we read stuff all the time. So sometime this week, sit down. I mean, you should read all four Gospels, but we'll just start small. St just read Luke. Read it. Sit down, you know, some night this week, turn off the TV. Don't watch Dog the Bounty Hunter or... You know, everybody loves Raymond, or whatever it is you watch. Just you know, turn it off, and just just read Luke. I don't. Know how, I bet you'll take you under an hour. Sit down and read it from end to end. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, please take the one in the pew rack home with you. I mean that. Just pick it up right now. Write your name in the front. Take it home. We want you to have that Bible. We have more in boxes downstairs. It makes us feel good when people are taking Bibles. That that makes us feel like you know. So make us feel good. Take a Bible home and <laughs> read Luke. Read Luke. Um, and you've got to read Luke. Even if you don't believe in Jesus and Christianity, you have an obligation to read Luke to be educated. Jesus is the most influential person in all of Western history, hands down. I would even argue that he's the most influential person in all of human history. 
I mean, around the world today, the church is exploding in the two-thirds world. It's exploding in South America. It's exploding in Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, the, the church is just going bananas over there, even more so than here in the West. Jesus' influence over history has only increased, not decreased. So, I, I mean, I, I just think to be educated, you have to read Luke, I mean, it's just kind of, or one of the Gospels. You have to read the story of Jesus. Somehow, again, our culture is so whacked that you can get through junior high, high school, bachelor's degree, master's, and even a PhD in our culture, and never be required to read one of the Gospels. And we call ourselves educated. You know, that's not educated. That's called censorship, right? You know, read it. Okay, so if the schools won't do it for you, then do it yourself. All you kids in high school and junior high, you need to do this. It's your homework time to get ready for school. You've you got to just read it. So you're educated. So you're an educated human being. You need to read the story of Luke. And then the second homework assignment I have for you, the first one is to read. The second one is to consider. I want you to consider... Uh, joining a Luke group this fall. And let me just tell you quickly what that is. Uh, a Luke group are some of our small group Bible studies in the church that this fall are going to try to synchronize their topics with the sermon series. So a, we've never done this before. We're trying it for 12 weeks in the experiment. But what we're going to do is we're going to take, you know, if I'm preaching on a certain text on a Sunday, the Luke groups will have studied that text together in a Bible study the week before, so that when they come to the sermon that Sunday, they're going to have already dug into it, analyzed it, debated it, and really get into it. Uh, and, and so we're going to try this. We've never, like I said, never tried this before as a church, kind of synchronizing things a little bit more. We're going to try it for 12 weeks. And uh, if you're interested in one of those, there's going to be people out in the foyer afterwards. They're going to be handing out little brochures. They're going to have little yellow name tags or colored name tags. That, and they're small group leaders. And just go up to one of them and say, hey, how can I get involved in a small group? And even if you don't want to study Luke, there's other small groups that are open and would love to take you and you can be involved in those too. So I want you to just consider that. I mean, maybe you've never been in a small group Bible study. Maybe that sounds scary to you. you know, but just try it. Because when you're at a sermon, it's kind of a one-way thing. It's me just going. But when you're in a Bible study, you, know, you can be like, well, what about that passage? I'm not sure about that. Or how does that make sense? Or explain that to me. And, and you can debate it and discuss it. So it's a really rich experience. So you know, study, study Luke with others. Educate yourselves with others and read the story together. So just think about that. Think, think about maybe putting your toe in the water in, in a way you've never really done before. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. It doesn't matter how old you are. There's a place for you in this church, a lot of Bible studies, where you can come together with other people and meet people and study Luke and be gathered uh, for 12 weeks for that purpose. And my prayer is that as we get back to the basics, as we study the, the story of Jesus, as we get down to the fundamentals of who he was and what he did, then our faith will be strengthened. I pray that God will use this story to just build this church up, teach you the certainty of the things you have been taught, so that we might fall more and more in love with our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you didn't just create the universe and go on vacation forever. But that, God, you spoke and you told us what your universe means. You told us who you were. You're a God who's always reaching out and revealing yourself. You revealed yourself to us in this beautiful world. We can just look around at nature and know there's a creator. And, Lord, I thank you that you've also spoken to us in the Bible, that you've spoken your word to people and that you've ultimately spoke through the person of Jesus. And so, Jesus, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your word and hear you speak through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that as we study your story in the next months and, and uh, maybe even years uh, studying through Luke, I just pray that you speak to our hearts, that we would hear about you and hear from you, that we might know you intimately and that we might know the certainty of the things 
we have been taught. I pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.